Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be talking about our two prominent contenders for this year's Academy Awards, Nomadland and Minari. Now, you touched on this a little bit a second ago before we started recording, but how was the WWE thing you went to this weekend? It was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. It was the first time that I've been to WrestleMania, the first time I went to any live wrestling event, actually. Mm. And it was incredible. In spite of the fact there was a lot of weather stuff that was going awry during the two nights, mainly on the first night, we had a rain delay after all the wrestlers came out, and Vince McMahon opened up the thing. He did the whole, welcome to WrestleMania, and we were all pumped. Vince McMahon ready. was there? Of course. Vince wow. McMahon, the chairman of WWE. That's crazy. You think he would miss an opportunity to relish in the applause of the crowd? He was the first person that we saw after a year of no live events. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he definitely was there. Not the second night, though, which was interesting, but the first night. He did show up. We had the whole fireworks thing. We did the, it wasn't the national anthem. <laughs> they sang America the Beautiful, which mm-hmm. was interesting. I don't know why. I don't know if that's the thing they always do at wrestling events, but we did that. And then we got hit with the delay where they made us all get up from our seats and go into the enclosed portions of the stadium, huddling with each other, which during COVID times, not a good not idea. a great choice. No. And then they didn't even tell us to come back to our seats. Was it like a tornado warning or something? No, it was just thunderstorm warning. And I think lightning struck somewhere, but we didn't even hear thunder. So I don't know what made the system go off. Yeah, they're like, there's a lightning thing, so go hide. Because I tried to go to food trucks that day, and they got rained out. So I didn't get any food truck food, which pissed me off. Yeah, well, thankfully, WrestleMania didn't get canceled like those food trucks. And so we were able to have two amazing nights. I am sad, though, that they didn't have the man, my guy, the high-flying, mask-wearing, underdog, Rey Mysterio. He's my favorite wrestler, and he wasn't there. Did they do any prop fights, like with chairs and stuff? They did have a Nigerian drum fight, which had a surprising lack of drums being used in the fight. But there were a lot of... They used tables in that match, and then later on there were chairs in the main event, which had the triple threat between Edge, Roman Reigns, and Daniel Bryan, which was fantastic. It was brilliant, a five-star match, great way to close out the night. They had Roman win, who's the heel, so in wrestling that's the bad guy, Mm -hmm. which was stunning that they had – they made us all leave with the bad taste in our mouth of the bad guy winning. But the back and forth throughout the entire match, the in-ring storytelling that they did, having Edge and Daniel and Roman there, they all were people that were sidelined with injuries. Like, they were forced to retire or at least take a step away from wrestling. Mm -hmm. Like, all three of them at different points in their careers. And they all beat the odds and came back. And so that also made this match really special. And it was 10 years to the day that Edge retired. He was world champion 10 years ago, and then he had to give up. He had to retire. Then he came back, and now his whole storyline going into it was that he was trying to get his championship that he never lost, so he deserved to get it back, and he absolutely did. I can't believe they didn't give it to the man, but it was so amazing. They played us like a fiddle. They had Edge doing chair shots. They called the concerto to each of the other two competitors. Uh And then he hit him with the spears, and we thought that he was going to pin him. Everyone was on their feet. They were doing the chanting of the one, two, three count with the ref as he was hitting his hand against the mat. But Roman kicked out. Well, he didn't even kick out. Daniel Bryan pulled the ref out. And, ugh, I so wanted Edge to win. He deserved it. But 
even though that finish didn't go the way it wanted to, overall, the experience was incredible. The first night, I went with my homies from Firehouse, the Squaw. The second night, I went with some friends from high school, and it was all of our first WrestleMania. And it was a blast. The experience is what you make of it, and we had a great time. We enjoyed ourselves. Well, that's fantastic. This was your first in-person thing, like big in-person thing going to after pandemic times. Was it, was it, did you feel safe? Were you worried about anything? Was it fine? Again, the rain delay was sketchy. I, during that time, because initially we stayed in our seats out of protest because we were like, this is dumb. Yeah, of course. We just got rained out like the whole way. We had to go buy (laughs) jackets and trash bags to prepare ourselves in case we really got rained on throughout the whole thing thankfully Mm -hmm. that didn't happen but we were like we just started the show we wanted to see it so we were protesting by staying there but then i was also like why would i want to huddle in with all those people but they did kick everyone out of their seats so they did come for us and said hey you gotta go so we were able to go find a more secluded spot in one of the ramps to the higher levels of the stadium so i was okay there but there were a lot of people and you can see it on like if you go back and look at the clips, there are quite a number of people that had their masks off a lot of the time, which not great. But for me, we did have there was secluded or social socially distanced seating. They had cutouts in the seats, which was funny and weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did at least have social distanced seating, and we were wearing masks. Most of the time, unless we were taking a sip of the drink, or at least I was, because you know, I had to have water. I got absolutely destroyed, man, my wallet, having to pay for the water, since they don't let you bring any in. But overall, I feel fine now. We'll see if any symptoms come up later, but I think we'll be good, since most people were Mm -hmm. following the guidelines, so I feel okay with it, but... Yeah, again, overall, the experience, I was like, that's a risk I'm willing to take because this is the main reason I wanted to go is one of the, it's going to be one of the last times that I'll be able to see the superstars that I grew up watching and loving. And sadly, there weren't enough of them there. I got to see Randy Orton. That was great. Got to see Edge. That was incredible. But like I said, Rey Mysterio wasn't there, which is stupid. He's literally on the roster. He was on Friday Night SmackDown. They could have had him in one of the cards on WrestleMania. They just chose not to. They didn't even have him make That's an appearance. Right. They promoted the video game WWE 2K22 by ah. using Rey Mysterio as the main promotional material. But then they didn't even have him show up. It would have been a great pop. The crowd would have gone crazy. I would have been. I would have lost my voice screaming for him alone. But yeah, they didn't have him there. Undertaker just retired, so he wasn't there. John Cena wasn't there. Batista, Stone Cold, all that was. So it was rough not seeing them. We did get to see people like Booker T. Mm. That was good. Kane was there. Whoa. Jerry the King Lawler. But unfortunately, didn't get to see my main man, my favorite wrestler. Hogan was there, and he got booed every time he spoke. And that is Of course he did. Yeah, that's character development for the WWE universe. Thrilled about that. Well, I'm glad you had a good time over the weekend watching those big sweaty men attack each other. Hey, we got some other. Yeah? It's an art form. I'll let you know. But yes, there Plus was a lot of a, a wonderful sweaty performance men attacking piece. each other. Pardon? It's a wonderful performance piece. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to watch them perform. They, they're doing dangerous stuff out there. They're throwing chairs at each other. Exactly. So even if. Even if you're the uninitiated fan, you can find enjoyment in things like that, the physical feats that they do. Because even if it's fixed, right, obviously, there's still real still damage that they're taking. Yeah. yeah, they're putting their bodies on the line. And there is a component of storytelling that goes into every single match. It, well, of course. Wrestling is so unique because it's a fusion of the athleticism and the theatricality. So... That is why I love it. And going in person, oh, it is such a distinct experience than viewing it at home. 
There's no commentator doing the play-by-play in your ear. It's more of a direct connection between the audience and the performers. And again, they really are doing storytelling. It's just with their bodies, their facial expressions, their movesets. So it was a blast to be there, to experience it all. Absolutely loved it. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you had fun at the WWE event here. And then also in England, they had the BAFTAs, which is the British Oscars over the weekend. And Nomadland won big. Chloe Zhao picked up the Best Director Award there and also at the DGAs. Uh, didn't Frances McDormand win as well? She did. So yeah. it is certainly a film to look out for. And of course, we'll be giving our thoughts on that later on in the show. But we do have a different kind of box office related news. Top Gun Maverick is shifting its release date, is moving later, so out of the summer of this year, to November, and that pushes Mission Impossible 7 to May 2022, and then that also pushes the eighth installment of that franchise to July 2023. So somehow we are still getting a round of release date shuffle. We're moving the pictures around those are paramount movies so Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see that they're i don't know i guess not confident in the summer movie season of this year so they're trying to trying to make sure that they get a lot of revenue from the box office by moving a little later when hopefully more vaccines have been distributed and more people are able to feel comfortable going to the movie theaters Mm -hmm. and spending their hard-earned cash so interesting to see that it does feel like we've had a a lot less tom cruise recently i haven't seen him in a while i guess but we're gonna get an influx of him soon once the the covid shuffle stops going on and we start getting the movies we've been promised it's about time anyway we have our box office breakdown for last weekend and coming in first as we predicted godzilla versus kong though at significantly less than we thought it would make i said what like 30 million still around it did it only got i boofed on that one man we only got 13 million for godzilla versus kong which is nearly a 60 percent drop but it is still impressive that it has made nearly 70 million domestic and 358 million global meaning it's closing in on godzilla king of monsters uh performance which was 386 million so it's getting there exactly it certainly will pass that because there's still a few places it needs to open like japan for one so it will beat out godzilla king of monsters but we'll see if it's going to be able to get close to the 500 mil threshold possibly not based on this big drop that it had here in the states and the fact that it is still a dual release on hbo max so we do have to keep that in mind this maybe is not as crazy as a drop as we're making it seem right now because again people could have just chose to get hbo max but there are still people that are willing to go and see this flick on the big screen so there is still some good news people are willing to go see it just not as many people as we thought last week when we were quite optimistic about this week's performance for Godzilla versus Kong. And coming up after Godzilla versus Kong from this weekend, our second in place is Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk action movie made 2.6 million, which is a drop from last week and it's still hanging on to number two. After that was the horror movie that not many people saw, The Unholy made 2.4 million. I still don't know anything about it. it doesn't look very good. Raya in the Last Dragon garnered 2.2 million this weekend, bringing its global haul to over 100 million. That was you. That was alternating. You you can't end on a high note. It doesn't sound like you're ending the sentence. It seems like you're going to say more. What do you mean? That you was said, the innocence. Raya in the Last Dragon made 2.2 million, which means it passed 100 million. Which means... The global thing passed 100 million. Dude. Are you typing the thing? Let me just do Raya again. Okay. Raya and the Last Dragon 
garnered 2.2 million this weekend, bringing its total worldwide gross to over a hundred million. Which is a pretty, I don't know, I'm impressed. I, th- I, I thought it was less than that based on how we've been reporting on it the past few weeks. I thought it was around 60 million. I guess I just didn't look at the totals, but at least it, it made some money back and Pixar or Disney got something out of it. Uh, after Ray and the Last Dragon in fifth is Voyagers, which is the Colin Farrell movie that is Lord of the Flies in space that I finally got to see the trailer to. Boy, it looks bad. <laughs> Woo! It made 1.3 million, which means it flopped hard. This is its first week. That's a pretty disastrous opening. I guess there weren't that many Irish people going out there to see Colin Farrell. <laughs> nope, not at all. The yeah. Colin Farrell stands don't exist anymore, I guess. And in our sixth spot, Tom and Jerry got 1.1 million this weekend, bringing its total haul to over 100 million worldwide. Now, there aren't a lot of big movies coming out this weekend, so there's not a lot of new predictions. Things are going to look pretty much the same, just with less income. So we're thinking Godzilla vs. Kong is still going to be on top on its third weekend this weekend, and it's going to make some amount less than $13 million, certainly. So I'm going to guess around $7 million, $6 million. Yeah, I will. I'll go 8 to $9 million. We'll see if... In the Ooh, third weekend, it'll drop less. Well, because that's what happened with Raya and Tom and Jerry. They did have a big drop off the second week. And then the third week, they were able to mitigate that drop off. So I'm I'm going to be optimistic here and say eight to nine mil. Well, we will see. And that leads us into our big topic for today. The Oscars are coming up and two of the biggest movies nominated this year are Nomadland and Minari. And we're going to be talking about those two to get you all well up informed about the two of them in case you don't know much about them. Our first movie is Nomadland, which was directed and written by Chloe Zhao. It's starring Frances McDormand as Fern, who is uh, a woman who lived in a town, the fictional town of Empire, Nevada, which was a company town. It was the, the closing of the company and the coincide, coincidental death of her husband. She has found that she no longer belongs, and so she decides to live life as a nomad a van-dwelling nomad out on the roads in America doing odd jobs here and there. That's pretty much the premise. Uh, the cinematography is by Joshua James Richards. This year it is nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, which is also Chloe Zhao, which is interesting, Best Actress, and Best Cinematography. Exactly. So, first of all, I do think Empire was real, wasn't it? Was it really? I think it actually is, because it is based on... This movie, Nomadland, is based on the 2017 book by Jessica Bruder, and it doesn't follow Fern, right? That is a fictional character. Yes. The book followed Linda May, who I'm not quite sure if she did come from that Empire, Nevada town, but her story that we see play out in the movie Nomadland mirrors what was going on in the book when Jessica Bruder sort of followed her around and the other van-dwelling nomads uh, as they traveled the American West and then picked up these odd jobs, these seasonal jobs like work at Amazon. So it is interesting that this, I mean, it's nominated for the adapted screenplay, so it does adapt the material from that book, but then it combines it with this wholly new fictional character, Fern, played by Frances McDormand, who is incredible in it, and it also brings in these fictionalized versions of the real-life nomads that are showcased in that book, like Bob Wells and Linda May and Swanky. So that, for me, gave a really authentic feel to the mm-hmm. film, because none of them are actors, but they clearly are drawing from their own life and their real experiences. And I'm interested to see how much of that was things that they worked on with the filmmakers with chloe zhao to come up with okay what are you going to say in this scene and how much of it was improvisation like during these certain interactions that they have because a lot of the moments felt really raw and authentic and that for me was a highlight of it it pulled me in so dylan what was your favorite nomad story which of these real life nomads were you the most interested in 
And I think a lot of these, when they were doing the, the people who were actually real life nomads and they were doing them telling their own stories, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that they was their actual story that they were telling. They were talking about their experience of being a nomad and why they chose to be nomads. Um, I saw this movie in February, so I don't remember too much about it, but I remember the there was one, it was a fictional character. It wasn't a real life person, I don't think. And it was the kid when she was just like on the outskirts of a town and they like shared a cigarette or something and they were just talking about life that I really liked. I liked that scene. It's very vague, very vague memory. This was a while ago. A couple You're good. Months. Yeah, it was a kid that she earlier on in the film had given a cigarette lighter to and then later on down the road, yes, they met up you. with each other, which is a theme in the thing. There's no goodbyes, only see you down the road. So yes. they met up later on and she was talking with him about the girlfriend that he had and he's thinking that there's nothing he can do to i don't know give her the life that she would want since Mm -hmm. he's this nomadic spirit she isn't and then francis well fern talks about the poem that she used during her marriage vows which was shakespeare's big sonnet (laughs) the most famous one about comparing thee to a summer's day so that was an interesting one for sure uh for me though it was swanky. Mm-hmm. She was the one who talked about um, she had only a few months to live because she was diagnosed with cancer. And she was describing to Fern the trips that she had done, saying, oh, well, I had lived a good life. And now I just want to go back up to Alaska to where I guess her home was uh, and see some of these sites again. And one of them was her canoeing next to this cliffside that had hundreds of swallow nests. And they shot out of there and were flying around her. And she was looking at the reflection of them in the river. And so it felt to her like she was flying among them. That whole moment was the most impactful one for me. It was, yeah, it was just really powerful. And then having that recognition of this is a real person's story. Like this is her talking about her real life. I'm not sure if the cancer diagnosis is... Uh, true but Mm -hmm. the rest of it certainly is and so i was like wow this is incredible the the main theme i think of the film it really is overcoming grief it's fern who lost her lifestyle in her home and her husband Bo, and so she's on this quest to search out this new one and sort of process that grief and so this story with Swanky of someone who is completely in, at terms with the loss that she had, because I believe her husband also had died long ago, and that sent her on this nomadic life. Um, and then now when she's confronted with her inevitable demise, she's completely fine with this. She's at peace. She's going to go continue her nomadic journey and explore the rest of what life has to offer. And it was really interesting seeing that take place with Fern with her relationship with this character, David, who is a fictional uh, person, but that's also someone that she meets a lot. And David clearly gains this affection for Fern, sort of falling in love with her, this later in life romance thing. Um, And it's interesting to see how Fern reacts to that since we know that she's still deep in this grieving process. Um, And even though she's stripped from her home and her original lifestyle with Bo, she's still carrying a lot of his shadow with her. So how did you feel about that theme that emerged? Because that wasn't something that I thought was going to be a big thing in Nomadland going into it, but it's my biggest takeaway after watching the film. So how did you feel about that theme and that interaction between Fern and David? Okay, but first I want to talk about uh, when you were talking about Swanky and her story and the birds that were flying, like she was canoeing and they just all erupted. It reminded me, uh, after I saw the movie, uh, you lend me your copy of the Matthew McConaughey book, Green Lights, mm-hmm. and the scene where, where he's talking about how he had the wet dream and he had to go to, to, to find the wet dream out in the real world. So he went to the, the place where it happened, which is the Amazon rainforest, and he's searching for this place where his wet dream took place. And like he he like is like 
what canoeing and then backpacking and then like just like going deep into the rainforest and then eventually like part some trees and all these birds fly out and they're all covered and he's like i found it i found the place and i just like the idea of people going out and then having this intense experience of like a new place and then swanky who is uh, this took place like where she lives. She has this great experience where she lives already. And then she goes out and like lives her life as a nomad, just exploring new places, having new experiences. And then she wants to come back and ha- like relive that experience and relive these beautiful sites back in her home before she dies. So it's like, it's less about where you are and it's less about where your home is. And it's more about the experiences you have and like, what you feel like Matthew McConaughey went out to find his experience. Swanky has to go home to relive hers. It's, I just love that idea. Also birds. Just, I love bird symbolism and everything. Just great storytelling. But on, on, on the topic of David and Fern about them connecting and the two of them and the whole thing with uh, David's son and that his family and that he tries to like, settle down again and stop being a nomad every once in a while and fern can't commit to that lifestyle i thought that was emotional because i was like fern can like has found a place she's found people and maybe it could hold her down to a place as if she finds people that she can connect with because that's the whole, whole point of moving out is that her town is gone and her husband is gone and there's nothing keeping her to that place so she decides to live as a nomad because she thinks that'll be easier than staying and so she goes out to live her life out there and now she's found people again that care about her. She's found people that she likes back that she might want to stay with. And so they might hold her down, but she decides to leave anyway. Because I, I don't know if she's scared, but from what I got, when she goes back to her hometown at the end, kind of like Swanky returning, she's just trying to find her own kind of inner peace. And she can't do that staying with David and his family. She has to go out and find the peace within herself and accept the change that has happened and accept the life that she lives now and the life, find the life that she wants to live, not the life she thinks she should live, I guess. Right. And on that note with the ending portion, so Fern, as you said, doesn't end up committing to a sedentary, which one is it when you're like just on your own, a sedentary sedentary is like when you're staying put, that's the one. Right, so she's not gonna settle down into a sedentary lifestyle. She is a nomad at heart. So the final shot is her van on the road. So we see that ultimately her decision to return to her home is sort of a cathartic release. So she's visiting that place and I guess unpacking those demons that she has with the relationship with Bo and she's letting that go and then going back on the road to continue the rest of her life as a nomad running into people and forming these important and impactful relationships with people but it seems like she's never going to end up settling down with them like she did with Bo that first time when she left at a very young age and married him and then ended up in Empire Nevada so it is an interesting anti-circular sort of ending there because she doesn't end up doing what she did in the beginning when she set out on this somewhat nomadic lifestyle or at least one where, again, she's choosing her own road and not what others had for her, which came up a lot in her conversation with her sister. She's deciding to just go out on a whim and go marry Bo, someone she hardly knew. Um And then for 40 years, that was her life. And then once that ends, is she going to do that same sort of thing and dive Mm -hmm. into this other relationship where she'll settle down? No, she ends up dedicating the rest of her life to being this nomad and just traveling around and exploring. So that, I think, was a very interesting ending as well, since it isn't that isn't one that you would entirely expect but it certainly fits the character and i think the overall themes of the movie so Mm -hmm. yeah but part of me was like oh david and her work so well it'd be nice but 
the other part of me is no, she's being true to who she is. Yeah. She's ultimately the nomad at heart. So this is what's best for her. Um, and this is the best new chapter of her life that she can have. Yeah. She doesn't want to be tied down again. She wants to live life the way she wants to live it. And she wants to, to focus on her at this point in life and live her own life, which I respect. I think it's cool. I think it's cool to go out and just explore, take the road and just see where you end up and just take odd jobs here and there. I think it's neat. Exactly. All right. So final thoughts for me would be number one, the gorgeous cinematography, well-deserved Oscar nomination there. Mm -hmm. I thought it was an interesting pace that the editing had because you would think with a film like this, it would really lean into long drawn out scenes, but a lot of them are quite short and they Mm -hmm. cut from one scene to just a random thing where something else is happening entirely. And at some parts, I was like, this feels almost disjointed. Like, it seems like there isn't a flow. But then another part of me is, this is the truest slice of life film you can get. Because each of the scenes that we cut to are just pure random moments in the course of the day that Fern is going through. So ultimately, I think it grew on me. Mm-hmm. And then I also wanted to shout out this really interesting line that was happening between Bob Wells and Fern towards the end of the film where he says, you'll see Bo again and you can remember your lives together then, which I think was the final push Fern needed in order to go back to her town and sort of release her remaining life with Bo so that she can fully lean in to this new nomadic life that she's embraced. Yeah. I I think I understood what you're saying about the editing and how it feels a little bit disjoint. And you do get used to it after a while. You do kind of understand the the sort of like it's telling her story over a long period of time as she's doing these things that you don't want to show. Uh, this sort of linear story of her doing one thing, then next thing, then next thing, how they lead into one another. You wanted to show her living her life as she commits to being a nomad. And I understand that. But sometimes it does, like the pace does slow down a bit for me to a point that is not agreeable like there's times where i like a slow pace to happen and there's times i don't and there were times where i didn't like it that is probably my only critique of the movie is it did get slow at certain points in a bad way but for the most part uh i thought the editing was well done i thought it com- its commitment to what it was and what it wanted to be was very strong which i like and i just i thought it's a really good movie i think it is well deserving all the nominations it's nominated for this year um i i hope to see it do well at the oscars and i had a really good time watching it what would be your rating dylan out of out of five van dwellers how many do you give it four and a half van dwellers interesting i give it four i really really enjoyed it yeah i mean that's a good rating i just felt i don't know it may need to be a second viewing to Mm. really sell me on it um, but again, all the parts that I mentioned, I really, really enjoyed. I just don't know. Sometimes there's just a gap in between how intensely it impacts you. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't one that like entirely made me fall in love with it. So I'm giving it a solid four, certainly well-deserved. And again, maybe on more viewings later down the road, it will get bumped up in the rating but yeah for now i'll keep it at a nice four really really good film certainly like you said deserving of all the oscar attention it's getting it looks like chloe Zhao will end up getting the oscar for best direction since mm. she's been cleaning up those awards Absolutely. at every other award show so very excited for her and for this film definitely deserves all the praise mm-hmm and now the other film we're going to talk about today, which is also nominated for a slew of awards at the Oscars, is Minari, which is probably my favorite movie that came out last year. I've, I haven't seen Promising Young Woman yet, and I haven't seen a couple other ones, but I think of the ones I've seen, Minari is probably my number one. It was directed and written by Lee Isaac Chung, and it stars Stephen Yuen, Yeri Han, Yu Yun Jung, Alan S. Kim, Noel Cho, and Will Patton. The cinematography is by Lachlan Milne. And it is nominated this year for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actor for Steven Nguyen, Best Supporting Actress for Yoon Yoo Jun, and Best Score for Emile Mazuri. 
the basic premise is uh, Stephen Ewan takes his Korean family and they move to Arkansas in the 1980s. And they were previously living in, I think, California is what they say in the story. Mm-hmm. And he moves them there to build a farm, which is his dream. He always wanted to have up like not just like, well, it's really a garden is the thing he wants to do is like a massive sort of garden farm where he grows uh, Korean specific vegetables that he can sell at Korean markets in, in big towns and stuff. And he wants to make this big garden that he can support his family with, with more money. So he has that sort of American dream to to create something that can help his family but in doing so he has to uproot their lives and he 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 does it to try and make their lives better but it does create conflict because that now they're living in this new place with new people that they don't know and it seems a little bit upsetting to certain characters especially his wife what did you think about that thing about the the sort of family dynamic of moving to a new place and not knowing anybody there and sort of the disruption that has in, in Stephen Ewan's character's uh, relationship with his wife. I really enjoyed it. That theme, like you mentioned, of the American dream. And Jacob is the main character there of Stephen Ewan. Mm-hmm. And he, like you said, wants to do this for his family. But at a certain point, we start to see that it becomes more about trying to fulfill this idea that he has about what a successful man father patriarch should be mm-hmm. for the family and it ends up in certain ways hurting that family more than it's helping it and monica who's his wife is sort of the reflection of that she wants a more secure life in the city especially because their son david who is played by alan s kim who is so good in this movie oh he's incredible absolute breakout star he has a weak heart and so they're out like an hour away from any hospital so that of course is concerning so she wants to be in a place where it's more stable where he can get better care and where they can be more attached to an actual community uh, but again jacob is more focused on becoming a self-made self-made man who's mm-hmm. able to support his family through his own accord rather than just doing a thankless job like chicken sexing where they're sorting out the male and the female chicks yeah so that i thought was a really compelling theme in the way that the family from the get-go like we see the conflict as they're driving up in the moving van and within the first 20 minutes they have this big fight so at the heart of this is the strain that this decision is having on the family even though we know that Jacob is doing this for his family for good reasons, mm-hmm. but in certain ways it's tearing apart. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic throughout the entire film. Yeah, and of course the a big presence in the film, and for me where the movie really picked up is when uh, Monica's mother shows up and decide she's living there with them for a little while to help watch uh, David and his sister while the parents go off and work long hours at the chicken sexing place. And so that they can fund their garden. So she's there watching the children and encouraging them in their efforts. And she's just a fantastically written character and well performed by Eugene Yoon. Uh, incredibly funny. Uh, just a wonderful presence in the movie. Really, it, it's so interesting watching Alan ask him, David, David and his relationship with the grandma, who he has not met at this point, and he meets her for the first time in the movie. And he's trying to sort of assimilate into American culture and his grandmother doesn't really represent that to him, to him, you know, grandmas, they bake cookies and they're nice old ladies. And his grandma's sort of like the, she, she plays, she gambles and, and she uh, bosses them around sometimes and she's funny. She swears. And so she's not really what, he expects of a grandma and i think that's really funny to see him sort of or it was really interesting to see him sort of trying to reject his his korean heritage and then slowly coming to terms with it and accepting himself as who he is while bonding with his grandma who is an awesome grandma for sure again great actors all around in this and then like you mentioned that touches on that theme of this family who's a Korean-American immigrant family, but they're at certain different levels of 
being Korean American, right? Like David is an American. He was born in California, never been to Korea. And so when he's rejecting things like the Korean, what was it? The soup, something with deer mm-hmm. antlers in it, something like yeah. that. Um, that was interesting to see. He drinks Mountain Dew, right? Something that grandma had never come into contact with until he starts making her drink it. Um, and the you mountain see, water. Yeah, exactly. The mountain water, which was so funny and cute. Um, but then you see the way that they have these different relationships to who they're trying to be in Arkansas in America. Mm. The mother, for instance, Monica says something, or well, I guess the grandma is concerned about sharing the room with David because she thinks, oh, well, American kids don't like sharing their rooms. And Monica is like, well, he's a Korean kid. It'll be fine. And then, of course, David doesn't want to do that. Yeah, Yeah, and he says something like, oh, she smells like Korea. And he's he's never never been been there. (laughs) So we see that push and pull of someone like Monica wanting to be rooted in the culture that she came from, whereas some of the kids might be trying to lean more into the identity they have with being American. And then someone like uh, Jacob, who's probably, again, leaning more into just fully embracing the American dream and trying to be this self-made man. So that was an interesting interplay there. It also came up in establishing the churches, right? She wanted to go to, or maybe establish a Korean church so that she can, again, have more of that communal ties to her heritage. Mm-hmm. But they end up going to a just full-on regular Arkansas church. So, of course, mm-hmm. it's populated by a bunch of white people there. And so you see the culture clash that they have of those Arkansas people not being really familiar with Asian people. And then mm-hmm. them also meeting um, the Arkansas people there. So that was another interesting moment. And they all felt authentic and real to the moment. Um, things like meshing the two languages in the scene where Stephen Yun Jacob is showing his son where they're going to try to find the water yeah, in the low place or the high place. That was interesting because he, Jacob was switching between Korean and English while David was entirely just responding to him in English. Mm-hmm. So things like that, which again convey where they stand in their identities. Jacob is doing more of that code meshing, like merging the two languages within the certain sentences. Like even when he's speaking a sentence, he'll combine the two languages. Um, so things like that just carried throughout, I thought were really interesting ways to to convey where they stand, where their character's at, and what they're hoping for with this new home and this new life that they are chasing. Yeah. So what do you think the Minai, the plant, what does that represent to you? Um, I think it's mostly like the ties to their cultural heritage. And because you see he's he's Jacob is building this garden and it's very I mean, I don't know how Korean gardens look, but it's very Americanized and how it's it's long rows. It's built to be commercial. It's built to make money. And the grandma, she gets some Minari seeds and she finds a small pond. Uh, out in the middle of the woods she digs a couple holes puts some minari in the holes and lets it grow on its own just by the pond and so i think it's about like trying to connect to their cultural heritage and instead of committing to this sort of westernized uh commercialized garden that jacob is trying to go that ultimately is is not successful interesting awesome for me because i was trying to see i was like what is the symbolism of that Obviously, it's the title of the film, and I think the takeaway that I have from it is it sort of serves as an allegory for family, which I think is the biggest overall theme of the film. Mm -hmm. It's centered on this family and then the interactions between them, and so they describe how Minari is a resilient plant. It can spring up anywhere, even in the harshest of environments. It's able to thrive, and... Ultimately, that's what family is, even when times get extremely tough, as they do in this film, 
where at a certain point, Monica and Jacob almost sort of agree to just break it off. Mm -hmm. We sort of see that fracture of the family when she says something along the lines of, so you're saying we can't save each other, but money can because he wants to stay with the farm instead of moving back mm -hmm. to California, um, which he wants to do because the grandma suffered a stroke. So that happens, and then the farm burns down, or at least all their produce that was in being held in one barn mm -hmm. does. And we see in that moment them come together because initially he's trying to save the produce. He's like, that's our livelihood. We need to save it. Monica also goes in there to do it. But at a certain point, they realize the futility of that, and they're getting choked out by the fumes. Mm -hmm. And Jacob gives up looking for any more of the, the produce and tries to find Monica and save her. And then they make it out together. And then they look at the barn burning down. And ultimately, that seemed to reinforce that the choice there, or the right choice, is family. right? And then we mm -hmm. see them start up the farm again they go to the the guy that did the water thing like with the wishbone stick yeah. where he locates the water so they end up doing that to restart the farm but to do it in a way that isn't so right jacob isn't so pridefully trying to do it all on his own mm -hmm. uh, don't pay for anything if you can work for it yourself or get it yourself um and so ultimately the family perseveres they get over the hard times, which I think was another thing that Monica was saying in that final argument with Jacob mm -hmm. of we can work together in the good times, but what about the bad times? And mm -hmm. we see in the baddest of the times, they were able together. to come together, work together. Exactly. So for me, I think part of that Minari symbolism there might be family and how it's able to persevere and grow even in the harsh environments. Yeah. Now, in the end, when David is running after his grandma to, to keep her from uh, wandering off, did you think that David was going to die? Because he's, he's running and he has the heart problem and they keep mentioning and setting that up. Did you think he was going to die? I did not. I'm glad he didn't because that would have been so tragic. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he didn't too. And I didn't think he was going to either. But the whole time, because uh, I watched it recently again with Alexa and a couple other friends. And the whole time Alexa was like, oh, my God, he's running. Now he's going to die. He's going to die. That's how it's going to end. It's going to be sad. He's going to die. and I'm going to be sad. And that's how it's going to end. <laughs> and I'm like, just have some hope, man. Have some hope that David can overcome his illness to save his grandma. He can do this. He's strong. Exactly. And that was another beautiful moment was David choosing to run after his grandma being the strong boy like she said that mm -hmm. he was because she's a part of the family and he wants her to be a part of the family so that was a beautiful finish i thought amazing little scene there all right out of out of five minaris how would you rate this i'm gonna give it a 4.5 really where's that where that half go there were some moments, and I can't really articulate where exactly they were, but it felt like, I don't know, there were interesting choices in where we were focusing our attention during certain moments of the film. I didn't feel like it was balanced as perfectly as it could have been between each of the different family members. And so, yeah, that partially lost it. And also the Will Patton character. Ooh, interesting guy. For whatever reason, for me, like I see where they're going with that, and they're commenting on faith and how important that is to, right? It was a leap of faith for Jacob to do this, the American mm -hmm. dream itself, that idea, some consider it illusion. Either way, that is a leap of faith in itself as well. So they're tying that into it. So I understand that, but I don't know. I don't think it worked for me on all levels. So that, that brought it down. Mm. Now, for me, I'd give it the full five Minaris. I'd go oh, all out. Yeah. I just, there's not a lot of things that I see these days or just in general that I think really nails uh, depictions of a family dynamic. And to see it work so well in this movie, 
like on top of like such a great story of of this fam- of this guy trying to pursue the american dream i just love it i just love the way they they show the family dynamic i love the way that the grandma kind of throws a wrench into david's sort of lifestyle uh, i just love everything about it it's a great movie five minaris out of minaris all right so make sure if you haven't watched it yet make sure you do so even though we just kind of spoiled it but certainly deserves your attention before the Oscars, and we will see which of these come out on top. Because I think, well, yeah, I think one of these two might get the best picture win. I think it'll go to Nomadland, probably, just seeing how it's setting up. That's my prediction. But I would like to see it go to Minari. Well, we will. Two Korean films back to back, or two films made by Korean filmmakers back to back. Exactly. That would be very significant. And I definitely love Steven Yeun, so any any wins that he would get would be phenomenal and well-deserved. But yeah, we will do our full Oscar predictions next week. So stay tuned for that. And last but not least, speaking of Korean filmmakers, our movie of the week, which is directed by Park Chan-wook, is Joint Security Area, which came out in 2000, and it stars my one of my favorite actors, Song Kang-ho. Now, Joint Security Area is... The basic story is about soldiers standing guard at the border between North and South Korea, and an incident occurs, because I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to get into too, detail, too much detail, but an incident occurs, and a representative from the the council that mediates problems between the border dispute because there's like an there's some kind of uh united nations council that oversees it they send a representative to go there and investigate what happens so the whole story is just her trying to figure out what exactly went down at the border and so she's questioning people from north korea she's questioning people from south korea the soldiers that were there and asking what had happened and it just takes such a turn such a such a brilliant tense turn that i just didn't see coming and it's 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 heartwarming at times it's heartbreaking at times it is just absolutely phenomenal and i loved it it's it's cool non-linear storytelling is told through flashbacks that the soldiers are talking about a lot like uh, uh social network that we talked about a couple weeks ago the sort of flashback flash forward kind of storytelling that i think is super great it's just a phenomenal film. If you get a chance to see Joint Security Area, it's not available in a lot of places. It's still on the Criterion channel, if you have the Criterion channel. But if you get a chance to see Joint Security Area, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxofficeshow at gmail.com. That's theboxofficeshow at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by joseph mcdade be sure to tune in next week we're doing our oscar predictions and talking about promising young woman have a great rest of your day booyaka booyaka 619 ray mysterio should have been there